Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be discussing the Cold War. And across the table from me here, I have our resident expert on the Cold War, a former middle grades social studies teacher, Jason Creekmore. How are you this evening? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. All right. So we're going to get into the Cold War here, and we're going to begin, first of all, by sort of defining what the Cold War was. And the Cold War was a war between the U.S. and Soviet Russia that played out globally between 1945 and 1990. And the first thing I wanted to know when I started studying the Cold War, and in fact, when I first heard about the Cold War, was how did it get its name? Well, it was so-called the Cold War because in a hot war, nuclear weapons might potentially destroy everything, (laughs) which is not good. Yeah, that's bad. That is the opposite (laughs) of good. That's really bad. So therefore, both sides, the U.S. and Soviet Russia, tried to engage each other without actually fighting. So this is a war in the sense that they had different ideologies, capitalism versus communism, and both were trying to expand their agendas during this time. And of course, this took place in a post-World War II era. The Soviets saw the U.S.'s rebuilding efforts in Japan and Europe as the U.S. tried to expand its markets in those regions. And that's absolutely what they were doing. So Russia was right to be worried to some degree. There was fear on both sides. The U.S. feared that the USR, USSR wanted to destroy democratic and capitalist institutions, replacing them with communism, which they did in fact want to do. <laughs> the Soviets, on the other hand, feared that the U.S. wanted to use its power and money to dominate Europe and destroy the Soviet system. Yeah, that, that fear was legitimate. <laughs> and it was, and it's exactly what uh, they went to war for. So the war between the U.S. and the USSR could literally, at this time, have led to the destruction of life on Earth through atomic warfare. And up to this point, it was the very first time in history that a war of this nature could escalate to a level where it could literally destroy the planet. So, of course, there was a lot of fear going on during this time. There was a lot of propaganda. And one such thing that came out was a safety video. And, Jason, you may have heard of this. It's a film called Duck and Cover. Uh, I have heard of that. I actually watched this video here recently, and I'd seen it before. It's archived in the Library of Congress. And it's a video very much targeted at school-aged children to teach them what to do in the event of an atomic catastrophe. And it's, it's really interesting the way it plays out because it actually starts with a cartoon. Uh, there's a cartoon character named Bert the Turtle, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> Nothing says catastrophe like a turtle. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's the epitome of catastrophe. And essentially what happens is Bert the Turtle is just walking along his day as any normal child or adult or anyone who's watching this film <laughs> might do. And all of a sudden he sees a bright flash just behind his eyesight. And he, he doesn't know what it is. But immediately, as the film is titled, Bert ducks and covers. <laughs> he jumps into his shell, and the uh, it turns out the flash was a stick of dynamite in the cartoon. And all of a sudden, this narrator comes on, and he says, Bert, uh, this is exactly what you should have done. You should have, when you <laughs> saw the flash, you should immediately duck 
and cover. Now, the premise behind this and the allegory, I guess, is that this was, again, a time of you know nuclear ambition. <laughs> the threat of atomic war certainly was at the forefront of a lot of education efforts. And you know there was there was a real need to get education out to people uh, especially in the United States concerning what to do should the atomic bomb be detonated yeah that's a, that's a scary time it's very scary and there were a lot of students who at this time and during this time knew exactly what it meant to to duck and cover and essentially with this uh, particular video uh, it, it says that the atomic bomb begins with a flash. That's all you'll see. You'll see a sudden flash. You won't know where it came yeah. from. Uh, you won't have time to look around. And one of the fears was that children or adults, when they saw this flash, they would immediately run to the windows, which would be the worst thing yeah. <laughs> that yeah, you absolutely. could do if the atomic bomb detonates because following the flash is this wave of a force that immediately goes out from the bomb itself. And it's a little bit slower than the flash, but it is very fast moving and it's moving in all directions. And if you were to be staring out the window at the time that this force hits, Obviously, it's going to destroy walls. It's going to destroy windows. There's going to be a lot of flying glass and shrapnel, and it's not going to be a good outcome for the person who was curious about the atomic bomb. So duck and cover prevailed as the strategy of safety. Students would get under their desks. They would cover their heads, and essentially this would give them some level of security and safety in the event that the bomb went off without any warning. This sort of introduces us to the concept of the Cold War, and there were many different instances of conflict that occurred between the U.S. and the USSR, and one of these initial conflicts actually occurred in Germany, more specifically in Berlin. And Jason, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. At the conclusion of World War II, uh, Germany was divided into four occupation zones, uh, which were controlled by the United States, uh, Great Britain, uh, France, and then, of course, the Soviet Union. And according to the Potsdam Conference of 1945, there was to be uniformity of treatment of the German population throughout Germany, uh, regardless of you know whose zone that uh, a particular German citizen would be in. However, this simply just never occurred. Uh, the U.S., Great Britain, and France were focused on rebuilding Germany's infrastructure through economic aid and helping its citizens establish a, a democratic and capitalistic philosophy. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, uh, took the opposite approach uh, to their German territory as they wanted war reparations paid. They also stripped the German land of machinery, which crippled its economy. And as expected, the Soviet government confiscated all private land and businesses on their way to implementing full-blown communism. Over the next few months, uh, two very different halves of Germany emerged. The capitalistic West Germany, uh, controlled by the U.S., Great Britain, and France, and communist East Germany, controlled by the Soviet Union. Now, to further complicate things, the city of Berlin was also divided this way, with the Allied powers controlling the West, while the Soviet Union controlled the eastern part of the city. However, the city itself was actually 100 miles within Soviet-controlled East Germany. So you had this city that was divided, but in actuality, the city was entirely located in the eastern half of the country. Time went on, it became apparent that the U.S. and its allies could not collaborate with the Soviet Union in unifying Germany. On June 23, 1948, 
the Western powers introduced a new form of currency to its territories that would greatly improve the German economy. This was the proverbial last straw for the Soviets, as the very next day they imposed the Berlin blockade. Basically, the Berlin blockade uh, involved them blocking off all roads and waterways along the western border of Berlin. They encircled the city and prevented the Allies, the Allied powers from developing and delivering supplies to the citizens of West Berlin. Now, Shannon, this blockade could have easily led to war at that very moment. I mean, after all, you have one country who is literally blocking the entryway to an area that, an, that another country owns. The Allies did not want to initiate an international crisis, but they also had to continue supplying the citizens of Berlin with essential supplies. So the only option was naturally to utilize the airways. So on June 26, 1948, only three days after uh, the blockade began, the United States implemented the Berlin Airlift. In the coming days, Great Britain and France also joined the support efforts. Blocking a road is one thing, but shooting down a supply plane is another. And the Soviets knew that if they began to shoot at the planes, how that would look on the international stage. Plus, they knew that inevitably that would mean another war. They're not going to win any friends by shooting <clears throat> uh, supply planes down. No, not not to uh, you know innocent victims on the ground on the ground below that just want to stay warm and eat. Right. You know. No. Right. They were notified. Uh, the Soviets were notified that several uh, U.S. B twenty nine bombers were also positioned at British Airways that were potentially armed with nuclear weapons. And so getting back to what you were saying, I mean, you know, they, this was supposed to be just a, a peaceful mission, but in the background, the Soviets knew if this peaceful mission were to not be allowed, then it would no longer be a peaceful mission. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's always in the background of everything that we'll discuss about the Cold War is this threat of nuclear fallout. It seems everybody is armed with nuclear weapons <laughs> oh, <laughs> during yeah. this time. So for the next 11 months, the Soviets watched as nonstop flights flew over the Berlin skies bringing food, medicine, clothing, fuel, and small machinery. In fact, during the peak of the Berlin airlift, there was an Allied plane landing in Berlin on average every minute. So one plane landing every 60 seconds around the clock for 11 months. Did they ever, I wonder, consider doing like a Trojan horse <laughs> sort of initiative sure. there? I actually thought that too. I'm not sure. Somebody hiding inside <clears throat> of a, a basket or a barrel or something that they're dropping off and just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> jumping out. <The> surprise! <laughs> Finally, on, on May the 11th, 1949, again, 11 months later, uh, the Soviets uh, ended the blockade due to mounting international and media pressure. And while the blockade ended peacefully with no shots being fired from either side, there were 85 casualties over a span of 11 months due to flight accidents. These casualties included American, British, and German citizens. Hmm. And while the blockade situation was resolved by 1949, the 1950s saw the U.S. and the Soviet Union turn their attention, oddly enough, to outer space. So, Shannon, can you tell us a little bit about what that might entail? Well, in 1955, and actually a, a span between 55 and 75, the U.S. and the USSR engaged in what has famously become known as the space race. So, 
this was a competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union to see not only who could put spacecrafts into space first, but who could put the first people into space as well as satellites into space. So as World War II came to an end, the U.S. US and the Soviets actually captured some of Germany's rocket engineers. And there was one in particular who was captured. His name was Werner von Braun. He was recruited by the U.S. to lead its space program in uh, an operation coded Operation Paperclip, (laughs) where 1,600 German scientists, technicians, and engineers were secretly brought into the U.S. And von Braun actually uh, rose to a very high level, became a director as part of the U.S. space program. And, you know, Shannon, uh, in a previous episode, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the history of movies. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the 50s sci-fi movies, uh, I think, were based a lot on the, the happenings, you know, during the 1950s. Uh, with the space race. So I think we clearly see that connection as well. Sure. There was a lot of curiosity about space, and this was a global phenomenon. The U.S. and Soviet Russia were at the forefront of that phenomenon, and it was certainly playing out in literature and in movies during this time. So we have Werner von Braun as the U.S. lead of the space program. And then on the other side, we have a man named Sergei Korolov, who was recruited by the Soviets to lead their space program. And these two individuals collide and go head-to-head. And essentially, it starts to play out where you have uh, almost like a tally system. The Soviets will do something, that's one point for them. (laughs) The U.S. will do something, that's one point for them. Sort of the ultimate game of anything you can do, I can do better. Very (laughs) much like that. And unfortunately, in the beginning at least, it didn't play out very well for the U.S. because it seemed like at every turn, the USSR was ahead of them in putting objects and people into space. So in 1955, both countries announced that they would launch satellites into orbit. The Soviets took the lead, so they got that very first check mark uh, in the, the competition by becoming the first to launch a satellite into orbit. And that satellite was very famously Sputnik 1, launched on October 4th, 1957. Following that, the Americans launched their satellite, Explorer 1, four months later. So what's very intriguing to me is it seems like all of these milestones occur within just a relatively short time span of one another. They were really pushing each other to their limits. And I wonder how much of this knowledge was gained, you know, <clears throat> across the borders through spies and, uh, you know, the commandeering of these German engineers that were working on both sides and in both uh, nations. So, you know, what's, yeah. and what's so funny about that is, uh, you know, you're saying there that they, you know, these events were happening sometimes just months of each other. Yeah. And, and it sounds like, Very close. it sounds like competition was, was, you know, breeding success, which uh, yep. seems to align more to the United States philosophy on <laughs> on the economy there with, with capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> and Competition being a good thing, but yeah, well, nevertheless, the Soviets weren't picking up on it, <laughs> but they were <laughs> they were winning through uh, yeah a mild form of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Uh, yeah. So in 1961, the Soviets launched the first man into space. Cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first person to actually orbit the Earth, and soon to follow suit was the U.S. Only three weeks later, they launched their first manned mission into space, and it was astronaut Alan Shepard who became the first American in space. I have, I have an uncle that's actually named uh, Yuri for him. Is that right? Yeah. No, that's a total lie. Oh, <laughs> no, no, just joking. It oh. just sounded good. <laughs> that's awesome. I was but I wish, say, I wish I did have an uncle named Yuri. I was about to check your affiliations. <laughs> 
So the Americans were, were very embarrassed because it seemed like at every turn the Russians were just ahead of them. You know, they were the first ones to get the satellite in the space. They were the first ones to have a man sent into space. And they just became very embarrassed. And they really needed to take a stand and do something uh, that was more of a grand gesture to show the world that when it came to the space race, the U.S. meant business. Right. right? So on May 25, 1961, President John F. Kennedy made a bold statement to Congress saying that America would be the first country to land a man on the moon. Oh, the, the gauntlet was thrown down. He threw it down hard. And, and this was, uh, you know, interestingly enough, just two years before his assassination. So he really set up what was to become the next decade of space exploration, um, unbeknownst to him that this would be one of his final grand gestures and grand acts. So he even said that not only would they be the fir- not only would the US be the first country to land a man on the moon, they would do it before the end of the decade, which they did. And the Apollo program was launched. And when I see the word Apollo, I, I think about the movie, going back to yeah. uh, the history of movies, and I think about Apollo 13, which was a very big yeah. Tom Hanks film. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. Back in the day. Uh, very dramatic. Of course, uh, Apollo 11 actually would be the first manned mission to, to land on the moon. But in 1962, uh, John Glenn became the first American to orbit Earth. Uh, and then following this, NASA received a huge increase in their budget because they'd seen success. And obviously, JFK had thrown the gauntlet down, and he said, we are going to do this. We're going to be the first, and we're going to put the U.S. on the map, uh, the space map. Right. <laughs> we're going to be the first ones to land on the moon. So the U.S. launched a program called Gemini alongside the Apollo program, and its sole purpose was to design and develop the technology for the Apollo program. Now, the Soviets actually achieved the first spacewalk when Alex Leonov <laughs> walked in space. So if you're Forgot counting the score, yeah, <laughs> if you have your scorecards handy, <laughs> the Russians at this point uh, are, are three up on the U.S. in yeah. terms of first. But as it goes, a few months later, Jim and I uh, saw the first American, Ed White, walk in space. So it, the U.S. is just a little bit behind each and every time. But very famously, the Apollo 11 spacecraft launched in 1969 with American astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. And just as if it were a movie, malfunctions came up during the Apollo oh 11 space mission. <laughs> Can you imagine I can't. being in outer space and like, you know, uh, something lighting up saying, you know, malfunction or irregular <laughs> or something? I That's mean. exactly what happened, as a matter of fact. The lunar module, which was the spacecraft that was to actually land on the moon, malfunctioned. It was named the Eagle. And you talk about the lights lighting up and sort of this dramatic sequence <laughs> that you might see in the movies. That's exactly what happened. The lights came on. There was an error that appeared on the screen. And immediately, I think it was Neil Armstrong or uh, I can't remember. It was either Neil or Buzz. I I guess it was Neil uh, radioed back to headquarters and and just said, what does this mean? (laughs) You know, because uh, very obviously they had trained for this. They were prepared, but they didn't know exactly what that specific error meant. So they they did actually land uh, on July 20th, 1969. The Eagle landed on on the moon's surface, Neil Armstrong stepped outside, becoming the first man to walk on the moon. And you know those famous words, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And essentially, even though the U.S. at this point were three tallies behind the USSR, 
Putting a man on the moon's a big yeah, deal. That's, yeah, that's that's big. That's that's a few tallies. That's worth a few extra points. You know, that's that's a touchdown. Right, <laughs> so, absolutely. So uh, they leap ahead here, and officially the U.S. wins the space race. And one interesting thing about the quote, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, is that Neil Armstrong actually meant to say that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And if you go back and you listen to the recording, which is all over the internet, you can just Google it and pull it up, you can hear that he has a slight pause whenever he says, that's one small step for man. And then there's a little bit of static, yeah. uh, and that's yeah, because I've heard that. yeah. he realized at that moment that he had said the quote wrong. <laughs> so if you can imagine, that's he's cool, probably that's... been preparing for that for a long time. <laughs> you know, this is him rehearsing it in his head, and uh, you know, the the entire time probably when the eagle is is landing, right. and you know they're they're going through that whole issue, and then he gets out, he steps on the moon, and he says it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So in 1975, uh, a joint program between the U.S. and the Soviets called the Apollo-Soyuz mission would send three U.S. astronauts aboard an Apollo spacecraft to dock in orbit with a Soviet Soyuz vehicle. So for the first time, we see a little bit of U.S. and Russian collaboration in 1975. Uh, And there's, at that moment, a handshake between the commanders of both crafts, and this very much symbolized an improvement of U.S.-Soviet sure, relations, yeah. or at least outside of Earth. Yeah, the appearance, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Everything's cool up here. Everything's good <laughs> up here. So although the space race carried through 1975, there were many instances of things that occurred prior to that. And another notable event occurred in 1960 before the space race really kicked off. And Jason, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. Like you were saying there, one of the more controversial events of the Cold War uh, was the U-2 spy plane incident of 1960. A few years prior to the event, uh, President Eisenhower had ordered routine spy missions over the Soviet Union. And for the first few years, the American spy planes could simply just fly higher and faster than the Russian jets or their anti-aircraft missiles uh, could operate or reach the planes. But on May 1st, 1960, the Soviets shot down a U.S. U-2 spy plane piloted by Gary Francis Powers. And one interesting note, Shannon, about Gary Powers, he was actually born in Jenkins, Kentucky, uh, which is in Letcher County. Oh, wow. Another one of your yeah. uncles. Yeah, my uh, <laughs> cousin, second cousin. Oh, okay. Second yeah, second cousin. cousin, yeah. So a little, little Kentucky flavor there to the storyline. Gotcha. As the plane was going down, Powers ejected and parachuted to the ground, but was instantly surrounded by Soviet troops. A few days later, on May 5th, uh, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev announced to the world that they had recovered an American spy plane. However, the Americans, presuming that Powers was dead, refuted the claim, explaining that it was merely a weather, some type of a weather balloon or a, uh, a weather plane uh, that they had found. A couple of days later, Khrushchev dropped uh, the proverbial mic on the situation when he announced that they actually had the pilot, Gary Powers, in custody. So he had given the U.S. a couple of days to sort of own up to this this being a spy plane, and when they didn't, the U.S. assumed Powers was dead, that you know, he had died in, in the wreck, sure. but he had not. And so then two days later, it's like, well, ta-da, here's the pilot, you know, and he's alive and he's talking. The old know. bait and switch. That's, that's, that's right. So this development painted uh, President Eisenhower uh, and the U.S. in a very bad light. 
Powers was tried in a Soviet court and sentenced to 10 years in prison. However, he only actually served about a year and a half of that sentence. In February of 1962, the U.S. and the Soviet Union agreed to a spy swap that sent Powers back to America while allowing a Soviet spy also to return home. Kind of like NBA where like, maybe like you know, a, uh, a spy to be named later <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. you know, for the trade. The spy exchange program. That's, that's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, it would be less than a year uh, before perhaps the most significant direct standoff of the Cold War era occurred. Khrushchev was still the leader of the Soviets, but by this point, America had elected John F. Kennedy as president. So, Shannon, tell us a little bit about the developments uh, around Cuba. Sure. So, the U.S. and Soviet Union, throughout this entire conflict of the Cold War, knew that the other had weapons capable, capable of destroying not only both of the nations, but also the world itself. And this has been the underlying theme of the entire Cold War. So, Something emerged called the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, which lasted for 13 agonizing days as leaders on both sides of the conflict had words back and forth and tried to determine the best way to promote their own agendas without destroying the world. So in 1961, the U.S. actually tried to overthrow Cuba's new communist government in an event called the Bay of Pigs. This was the government of Fidel Castro. Right. So Cuba uh, sought assistance from the USSR following this event because under the leadership of Castro, they actually fought back the invasion by U.S. uh, US forces, and they reached out to Russia, and Nikita Khrushchev, the individual you just spoke of, secretly deployed nuclear missiles to Cuba, not only to protect Cuba, but also to counteract a U.S. threat from Italy and Turkey. So if you're trying to think about the atomic landscape at this time, we have Cuba, which is armed with nuclear missiles, uh, assumedly pointed toward the U.S. And then also we find that the U.S. has missiles pointed at Russia from Italy and Turkey. Right. So it's the classic game of everyone has their pistols in the air. That's right. (laughs) And waiting to see the first one to fire or who's going to put the pistols down. So an emergency meeting was held on October 16, 1962, and military advisors actually wanted to perform an airstrike on Cuba's missile sites and invade. So I can just imagine this playing oh my out. Gosh, yeah, man. Being in a room of decision makers and them having very literally the fate of the world in their hands as they decide whether or not they're going to conduct an airstrike yeah, I mean, on these bases absolutely. in Cuba. I mean, you, know, you better be sure. You have to be sure. <laughs> what you're doing. And you have to know what the repercussions are. And in most cases, nine out of ten times, it means the end of the world. Right. <laughs> so, obviously, you have to be very cautious. President John F. Kennedy kind of erred against this. Thankfully, <laughs> he urged a more cautious approach, announced that the U.S. Navy would instead intercept all shipments to Cuba. So he tried a little bit of a a different strategy rather than just immediately go in and strike the bases where presumably these nuclear missiles were located. And instead, he just decided that the U.S. would start intercepting all the shipments to Cuba. Now, this was not received very well by either Cuba or Soviet Russia. In fact, this was considered an act of war very similar to the Berlin blockade. uh, JFK called it a quarantine. He said, this is not war. This is just (laughs) an act of caution. It does not block basic necessities. Therefore, how can you call it war? 
Well, the Russians didn't like this explanation <laughs> a whole lot, <laughs> right. and they actually wrote an outraged letter to JFK, and Khrushchev in that letter said, the violation of freedom to use international waters and international airspace is an act of aggression which pushes mankind toward the abyss of world nuclear missile war. <laughs> that sounds like a threat. I have chills <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. now. Uh, this sounds like the bully on the playground who does not play games. That's right. And both sides at this point have nuclear missiles pointed at each other, and we're on the brink of, as Khrushchev says, very honestly, the world is uh, pushing toward the abyss of world nuclear missile war. Well, that's, that's some pretty serious language. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very direct. So on October 27th, a U.S. spy plane was shot down by a Soviet missile. That very same day, while this whole crisis is going on, a nuclear-armed Soviet submarine was hit by a small depth charge from the U.S. Navy vessel trying to signal it to come up. So very realistically here, we have the U.S. spy plane that gets shot down by a Soviet missile, which very clearly could be an indication of war. And then we have the U.S. shooting a small charge of explosives at a submarine uh, from Russia. And they were really just trying to signal it to, to come up, you know, to, I assume, question and see what their business was. But the thing about submarines is they do not have great communication with the surface, especially when they're at such great depths. So the Soviet commanders on the submarine were too deep to communicate with the surface. So when they got hit by the charge, they thought war had begun and prepared to launch a nuclear torpedo. So we're standing on the verge of the apocalypse here, Jason. We have these men in the submarine who assume that at this point, <coughs> nuclear war has broken out and they are prepared to launch their own nuclear torpedo. But in order to do this, there's a system of checks and balances. The decision to launch the torpedo had to be approved unanimously by three officers. So on board the ship, we had the captain and the political officer, both who authorized the launch and said, go ahead. So that's two out of three. Oh, gosh. Seeking <laughs> one final vote to end the world, <laughs> a man by the name of Vasily Arkhipov, who was second in command of the submarine refused. He said that we will not launch the torpedo, and his decision very honestly probably saved the world. That's sort of like the uh, old meatloaf song, uh, two out of three ain't bad. In this case, <laughs> that's kind of what it reminded me of there. It might have been the best. <laughs> yeah. So the U.S. military set itself to DEFCON 2, one step away from nuclear war, and this might be a good opportunity to uh, actually discuss what DEFCON refers to. DEFCON is an abbreviation for the Defense Readiness Condition. It is an alert state used by the U.S. Armed Forces, and there's five different levels of the readiness condition. DEFCON 5 being the lowest state of readiness, its code name is Fade Out. So hmm. this means essentially there's no threat. You know, we're at DEFCON 5. Now, if you turn that up a notch, you go to DEFCON 4, which is increased intelligence watch and strengthened security measures, and this is called the double take, the code name is, because okay. you're, you're starting to question. Starting I, to kind of look twice, right? Yeah, you're yeah. starting to look twice, see what's going on. DEFCON 3 is, again, another elevated level of the DEFCON system. It's an increase in force readiness above that required for normal readiness, and the Air Force is ready to mobilize in 15 minutes at DEFCON 3. Hmm. The code name is Roundhouse. 
yes. It's my favorite karate move. So at this point, Chuck Norris is at the helm, and uh, he is preparing the roundhouse. Uh, So DEFCON 2 is the next elevation of the system. This is the next step to nuclear war. It means literally at DEFCON 2, nuclear war is imminent. It's about to happen. The armed forces are ready to deploy and engage in less than six hours. The code name here is Fast Pace. And that's where we were at this time. That's where we were at this time when this nuclear uh, submarine was getting ready to fire the torpedo. Now, moving up to DEFCOM 1, a position that as of yet we have not been at in U.S. history. This means nuclear war is occurring. Essentially, no doubt in anyone's mind that nuclear war is going to happen. This is maximum readiness, and the term for this is cocked pistol. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, so at this point, we're at DEFCON 2, one step away from nuclear war. Hundreds of nuclear missiles were ready to launch from both sides. Hundreds, Jason. And if you can imagine just one. Oh, yeah. I mean, it could, you know, could destroy the, the entire world many times over. Many times yeah. over. So the metaphorical doomsday clock, something you, you may have heard of, stood at one minute to midnight. And the doomsday clock is a symbol which represents the likelihood of a man-made global catastrophe. It's been maintained since 1947 by members of an organization called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Midnight on the clock represents the hypothetical global catastrophe. You don't want to reach midnight on the doomsday clock. And it represents the group's opinion on how close the world is to catastrophe as minutes to midnight. Uh, the clock's original setting when they first set this up in 1947 was seven minutes to midnight, and it's been set backward and forward about 23 times since its hmm, original that's, inception. That's interesting. I've, I've heard of the doomsday clock, but I didn't really know it was like a r- real thing. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize that. It's sort of a metaphor. I think right. there may be an actual clock that they symbolically will right. adjust and do a big press conference and a discussion about what it means. But it, it is something that is basically the equivalent of the scientific opinion about wow. how close we Just are sort of an ongoing to catastrophe. Symbol type of you know, kind of explaining where we are in terms of danger type thing. Yeah. yeah that's, that's exactly what it that's was. That's interesting. So the most recent official setting, which is currently in twenty nineteen, two minutes to midnight, was made in January twenty eighteen and left unchanged in twenty nineteen due to threats of nuclear weapons and climate change. So at this point, both sides are looking for an out without losing face. In Washington, D.C., Attorney General Robert Kennedy secretly met with Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin. The negotiation ended with the U.S. agreeing to remove the missiles from Turkey and Italy, which, if you'll remember, was what started the entire conflict in the first place, and promising to never invade Cuba in exchange for the Soviet withdrawal from Cuba under U.N. inspection. And the ambassador, de Brennan, quickly went back to the Soviet leadership and said, we have to accept this quickly because, obviously, again, we're on the brink of destruction and nobody knows which side is going to be more bold in either firing or removing the missiles. Both have societal and governmental implications. Right. But, but we have an offer on the table right now. <laughs> There's an offer on the table. Uh, essentially, you put your guns down. I'll put mine down. We'll go home and live the rest of our lives. That's right. And it's sort of the you know shoot me no shoot <laughs> type of philosophy. That's how it was. Yeah. So time was of the essence, and by 9 a.m. the next day, the Khrushchev announced the Soviet missiles would be removed 
from Cuba, and essentially the crisis was over. Both governments actually got criticized for this, Jason, for bargaining with the enemy during this time of— I thought, by whom? Who's, <laughs> who's going to criticize the, the, the two nations who could have ended humanity well, by working it out? <laughs> the Martians? Yeah, yeah, the Martians. Certainly not the historians uh, <laughs> who, who would follow up on this years later, because historians agree and show great admiration uh, for Kennedy and Khrushchev's ability to diplomatically— solve the crisis, and officially end any threat of nuclear war, at least for this particular incident. So in moving through the Cold War, by 1990, the Berlin Wall came down. By 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Cold War was essentially over. So... Jason, do you have any more information about the Cold War? Shannon, I do. We have absolutely saved the best for last. This is the most important information of this podcast. Uh, the event that best exemplified the Cold War was Rocky IV. <laughs> Rocky Balboa versus Ivan Drago. Because if you remember, uh, Ivan Drago, whatever he hits, he destroys. He does. <laughs> if you remember that. Just like a nuclear bomb. That's, uh, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And this movie is just, I mean, full of imagery of uh, the two nations and the colors and the flags and even the, like the, the geographies of the nations, if, if you've ever seen this movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this just, you know, screams, uh, you know, Cold War. Uh, the movie came out in 1985 and, and really just played off the Cold War tensions, I mean, just overall. So if you have a need for a compelling Cold War documentary, <laughs> I'm going to suggest Rocky Four. I approve, and I agree. Uh, so I'm all out of material. Me too. Thanks to everyone who is following the podcast. We'll be back with another episode next week. Goodbye. Take care, everyone.